ladies, this is Jessica Iterole. And I'm Barbara Saunders Livingston. And we want to welcome you to the Seeking Holy Podcast. A podcast for women seeking Christ in a challenging world. As you listen, we hope you'll be encouraged to open God's Word, to seek Him, and strengthen your abiding relationship with Christ. Whether you find yourself with plenty of time or not enough time, pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab your Bible, and join us for Seeking Holy. Ladies, we just want to take a few minutes and thank you, our listeners, for the wonderful feedback and encouragement we've been getting from you. Many of you sent us notes and comments recently of support, and we have enjoyed them so much. Yes. Some of you have stated that this has been exactly what you need, that you want content that gives it to you straight. Well, I don't know if we always achieve that, but we are striving to. So praise God. It's been really, really edifying for us as often working in media, it appears as if to give us a sense of authority. We can assure you that we are not, in fact, confident of ourselves. We often say in our log line, we're just two women desperately seeking Christ. And that's so true. That's all we are. However, we have full confidence in our Lord and the fact that if we seek him with obedience in our heart, he will, in fact, lead us and cause this little podcast to be all he wants it to be for his glory. So thank you so much for your encouragement. Thank you for your communication. And thank you for helping make this podcast possible. Absolutely. Amen. You never know exactly what God will do or how far of reach he has in mind when you take those first few steps of faith in response to his nudge and voice. I tell you, it's been such a leap of faith for me to participate in a podcast. But when I see we're able to share truth from God's word and how it changes lives and sets ladies free. And well, as of today, I believe it's nine different countries and 95 cities. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, it's such a joy and a fulfillment. And it's like our little bit of faith Mm -hmm. through feet. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. This episode here is about faith. And I've been praying about what God would have me to share. And yesterday morning, I awoke with a hymn dancing around in my mind. I couldn't help but begin whistling and singing. It's called Great is Thy Faithfulness. Mm. Oh, God, my father, there's no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever will be all I have needed. Thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me, Um, we can have faith because he is faithful. We love and serve an invisible God. Therefore, it requires faith. A lot can be said about faith, similar to what we've discussed about holiness as being an overarching umbrella covering a much broader ideology and emptying into many other attributes and themes. Mm, That's right. And I love that hymn. That just so happens to be one of my favorite hymns. And there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hymns, but it's such a testament to his faithfulness, his goodness, his character. His attributes, thou changest not, thy compassions, they fail not. 
strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings are mine with 10,000 beside. So in this series on faith, we're going to define faith, hold it up to the light, so to speak, and examine it from multiple angles. I'll also be speaking from some sermon notes I gathered along the way, thanks to blueletterbible.org. I'll do my best to get all of those references up for you, by the way, in the show notes for if you want to explore some of these areas further. There's some great, great sermons on this. So is having more faith something you wrestle with? Does it feel like no matter how hard you try to believe, doubt and anxiety overwhelm you? Have you prayed for something and yet it hasn't come? Are you weary from the fight, the earthquake that shakes you? Do you feel cracks in your foundation beginning to form? To what will you hold on to? To what shall you cling? Or are you one of those who feel strong in their faith? You feel that often you're the one encouraging others to remain strong. Well, who encourages the encourager? What can you do to remain steadfast when everything chips away at you? Ladies, hopefully this will not be just a standard digging into faith. Faith is a complex subject, and yet its foundation and precepts are simple. We're going to work in this one this week pretty deep. And I, I told Barbara earlier this week, I feel like I'm saying that every episode. We're going to get into this really <laughs> deep, y'all. But uh, we're willing we are. And as we move throughout this series, hopefully you'll be strengthened, encouraged, and fired up to advance forward the kingdom of God. Yes, yeah, I'm already fired up just thinking about faith. Um, so faith, when we begin to understand and define it, it pictures a much larger life-giving gift. It's like faith encompasses a root system. So there's two main types of root systems. And somebody thought they needed to be called dicots and monocots, okay? So dicots have a taproot system, while monocots have a fibrous root system. A taproot system has a main root that grows down vertically, from which many smaller lateral roots arise. So for the sake of this illustration, faith is like that taproot. It's the main avenue reaching the deepest source of water supply. And in this case, in our case, uh, I'm referring to the living water supply. So we see this language and analogy all throughout the scriptures as characteristics of the anointed one, our messianic king, Jesus. Uh, this terminology used even pointing to his second coming. Other terms we see in the word as synonyms all referring to Jesus are a stem, a shoot, a stump, a root, a rod, a branch. They're all powerful analogies referencing this nourishing quality of our Savior. So Jesus is referred to as the root in Isaiah chapter 11, particularly verse 10. It says, on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And again, in Isaiah 53 too, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And in the New Testament, Romans 15, 12, referencing back in Isaiah, it says the root of Jesse will appear. Revelation 5, 5, he is called the root of David 
being victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And finally, Revelation twenty two sixteen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. So by faith, we have been grafted in uh, to a branch of whose root is holy. Um, and that's in Romans 11. We have come to share in this rich root of the cultivated olive tree. And this root is faithful to sustain us. And there are some really close compadres okay, acting in coordination and cooperation, if you will, with the main tap root of our faith. If we were to cut off these contributing smaller lateral roots like trust, belief, confidence, conviction being several, the sum and totality of our faith would falter and it would stop flowing freely. So continuing this language of faith and making the connection at being rooted, there's a couple supporting verses. Okay, Ephesians 3.17, that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. Okay, Colossians 2.7. Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. So whether we realize this or not, you know, we place faith in objects and people every day. You know, we trust that they will be what they claim to be and do what they say they'll do. So right now, faith is either being stirred up and strengthened by our main tap root, we've mentioned as being Jesus Christ, or it could be wilting and uprooted because of the faith which we have put in so many other things like jobs and health, corporations, maybe gas and oil companies, Federal Reserve, etc. The Bible speaks of different kinds of roots. There's roots of bitterness springing up and defiling many in Hebrews 12, 15. There's roots of all kinds of evil being the love of money um, in 1 Timothy 6, 10. And by craving that, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In Jude 1, it addresses some being like dangerous reefs, nurturing only themselves without fear, described as waterless clouds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled out by the roots. So what we place our faith in becomes the root, or is the root leading to what we trust and what nourishes and leads our life. Furthermore, in Luke 8, it speaks of the seed being the word of God, and some which fell on the rock are those who, when they hear, they welcome the word with joy, but having no root, these believe for a while and depart in a time of testing. And so true faith, the seed which falls on the good soil and ground, are those who, having heard the word, with an honest and good heart, hold on to it. In other words, become rooted and grounded in Christ, the taproot, and are confident in the trustworthiness of God, and by enduring, bear fruit. 
And it is those with the convictions or faith that what God says is absolutely true and that which he promises will come to pass. And so God is not a man that he should lie. Mm. He can be trusted and, and we should trust him. A life lived in faith in God always pleases God because without faith, it's impossible to please mm. him. Amen. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. What does this mean? Why does the word specifically say that pleasing him is impossible without faith? Because when we do not have faith, we're making a derogatory remark about the character of God. Now, that sounds harsh, but think about it. To not believe God is either to call him a liar or to consider him foolish or something. Do we believe his word is true or do we not? If yes, then we can press on to living in victory. And through this series, we're going to cover how to do this. First and foremost, it's important that we understand what faith is and what it isn't. Faith in itself does not have the power to change anything. It simply rests in the one who does have the power, relying on the might of God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is at the very core of Christianity. True faith is knowledge, but that alone is not enough. Even the demons have good theology expressed in James 2.19. And true faith is this knowledge plus conviction. We must trust. We must embrace. We must experience and feel the glory of God in this knowledge we possess. Faith is all about knowing what God has said and knowing who God is. He has given his word to tell us. Oh, please understand, ladies, the goal is not to just read the book, the Bible. It is to understand the author of that book. He himself is a mystery, yet he is not entirely an elusive mystery. He has revealed himself in his word and will reveal himself more to you and I every day as we trust him. Uh, yes, uh, Jesus expressed himself as being the greater testimony uh, by which the works God had given him to accomplish, the very works and miracles that he did, were done to testify and point to himself. Uh, Jesus as being the Messiah, the one Father had sent. In John 5, uh, Jesus says, you don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Mm, how sad. I've heard it said that God's will for us is not a package let down from heaven on a string, but rather a scroll which unrolls from day to day. It is a daily walking in step process, which we'll talk more on in Living and Waiting in our Minisode 4D or Section 4. But for now, looking back to Hebrews 11.1, 1, to speak about assurance and conviction, to have assurance, something to hope for. This is applicable only if God has spoken. And the conviction of something, not only have I not seen, but no one has ever seen. 
I can have assurance that what I hope for is real and conviction because God has spoken it. So when defining faith, we must focus on the object of our faith because God is the center of all things. And without God, there is no faith. Faith is not faith unless God has spoken. It is only faith when it is built upon God speaking to his people. And he has told us who he is. He has shared his will, the will of God, and he has given us his promises. It is our responsibility, girls, as believers, to strive to know the character of the one who makes these promises to us. He has given us reason to believe what he has spoken. Now, there are really dangerous rhetorics being taught on church platforms these days, redefining faith in these very metaphysical New Age contemplations. And it does much for making the listeners feel encouraged and good and empowered. But sadly, this one does not glorify God whatsoever. Two, it exalts self, which if we call it as it is, let's do that. It is idolatry. And three, leaves people feeling empty when the spiritual high is over. And we must be very careful of this idea of faith being this uncontainable, loose, ethereal object and the need to have faith in your faith. Faith is not a personal emotion and it is not the actual object of our faith. Does that make sense? Hmm. Our faith is not the object of our faith. It is the assurance we have in knowing who God is, pressing into him and celebrating the goodness that he gives and living in that freedom. Amen. Let's get real about it. Let's grasp true faith and start living in victory. Finally, we're not going to find it anywhere else, but in Christ, in Christ alone, in his word, us studying for ourselves in our Bibles to know who God is, his wonderful precepts and his timeless, everlasting and applicable to you promises. Hmm. Okay, so at certain junctures in this series, you're likely going to experience a couple of things. I'm just going to give you a heads up right now. One, you might experience a feeling of hard, hard work, even a scolding, so to speak, as we correct our vision and place God at the center where he belongs. This might feel like we're getting our toes all stepped on and mashed, but I encourage you, please don't move away from it if that's the case. Stay, ladies, and see it through. These feelings are merely our flesh fighting to remain in control as we move them out of the way. And then number two that you might be experiencing is also a feeling of unexplainable confidence and exhortation. God really is in control. He knows and wants the best for us. We can celebrate the no's and the yeses and the waits and the but God situations in our life. This is walking in real freedom and victory. The thought uh, that God can look down and be pleased or find pleasure in his child, in us, in me, in my life is so exhilarating and humbling. Yes. Do you ever want to please God? 
I mean, really, like, did you ever have the desire to want your earthly father to be pleased with you or to be proud of you? Um, Placing faith in God through Christ, believing his words and trusting in his ways and walking in revealed truth from his word is the way to pleasing our heavenly father. One of the very first sermons I heard, I, I was lost, but when the pastor spoke these words from the uh, this verse, something just lit up in me and went off, and I've never forgotten it. Um, the verse that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Mm. You know, God will say to some, you know, his obedient children someday in his presence and glory, well done. I mean, don't you want to hear these words from your heavenly father? Wow. He loves to be trusted and believed. And when we not only believe that he exists, but he rewards those who diligently seek him. Mm, Amen. Amen. I'm looking forward to that. I, I like you. I long to hear that. So the bottom line is that faith rests in and relies upon God himself. It all starts with our Heavenly Father. God is right, no matter what. His ways, His promises, His character is always perfect. And for good to those that love Him. He is faithful. He is love and He wants to move in the lives of His children and delights in doing so. We demonstrate faith when we trust His wisdom. His wisdom is freely given and available to all who ask. Uh, Just a few proverbs on wisdom. So that thou incline thy ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. And happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. I'm so glad he freely gives, aren't you? Yes. His wisdom creates in us a posture of, Lord, even though this situation is difficult, and you can fill in the blank there, this is difficult. Lord, I can hardly bear it. I can hardly fathom going on. But I know you do not make a mistake. Do you believe that, daughters, that God doesn't make mistakes? You were the same yesterday as you are today and you are tomorrow. You are working things out in me and for me and you are worthy of my trust. Do you believe that? Is he worthy of your trust? Uh, Barbara, I've heard you say, I think on another episode, you mentioned something about history, having history with him. We have the history in his word. And also we have the history of his demonstration of his providence in our lives. And I just love Ever since you've said that, that stuck with me. Absolutely. And so we can say, Lord, you are worthy of my trust. Mm -hmm. So faith is anchored on an object and the object is God, not our circumstances or in our ability to have faith. Furthermore, in acting in faith, a well-known pastor once said, the demonstration of faith is always obedience. Faith is demonstrated in obedience. 
the kind of obedience that has courage, the kind of obedience that will occur no matter what the cost or the price. See, obedience and faith, they're separate, but they operate in tandem. We should not simply obey God just because we desire to do the right thing, but because we believe God and what he tells us, what he shows us. And we believe that what he leads us through has a purpose. And all in all, we desire to obey him. The best end is always achieved through obeying God. So are we going to believe God? And if so, then are we going to obey his precepts? Do we believe what he says about his wisdom? And are we going to abide by it? Are we going to live it out? Our actions demonstrate the degree to which we believe God or to the degree we do not believe him. Let's consider Jesus's encounter with the fig tree. I'll speak from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 20. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? Now, this is a pretty bizarre miracle that occurs where Jesus is so upset at this tree, he causes it to wither away. And we could chalk that up to he was just really hungry and he was disappointed. But there's so much more to this story. And I know mm. we're anxious to get to the moving mountains in the next verse and obtain this powerful faith in the grain and mustard seed. And later this week, we will revisit Matthew 21 to explore these also. But before we can even venture there, let us observe something that's happening here. There are a couple of lessons to extract from this encounter. And at this moment, let's focus on one in particular. So the first thing we'll look at is the fact that the fig tree appeared to have fruit from a distance. But in actuality, at the need for harvesting, at the time of hunger, there was no fruit. This was unusual because a productive fig tree typically bears leaves and fruit simultaneously. So when Jesus approached it, his expectations were as advertised to partake and eat of its fruit. However, in this case, it was false advertising. Also notice the tree was cursed for its pretense of leaves, not the absence of fruit. So there is hope for all of us who strive to bear more fruit. Wow. Okay. So what you're saying from this account is, if I get this right, if we say or portray or try to paint a picture for others, which says, you know, from a distance, of course, I'm a Christian. I have faith. I belong to God. I go to church. But in getting closer in actual examination of my life, there's no real holiness or no spiritual fruit. Then Jesus actually curses trees like this. Man, that's definitely something to, to pray about. Um, I guess this is like lying, you know, it's deception. 
It reminds me of uh, Ananias and his wife Sapphira in Acts when, you know, they held back some proceeds and lied about it. Um, and Peter told them, you know, right before they actually dropped dead, you know, you have not lied to men, but to God and to Sapphira. Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? You know, we think we're putting on a show for others, but we're really you know, ultimately accountable to God for who we portray to be and, you know, how that lines up with our actual walk. Um, and now we all, we've all been let down, you know, so to speak by someone or something which didn't come through or follow through with what they claimed. Uh, we were deceived by or placed our faith and trust improperly or too casually or, you know, without all the facts. It's just part of life. You know, it's how we learn. Uh, but faith in God, however, requires some revelation from God himself, as you know, Jess has mentioned. Um, as I confessed in my story, uh, I didn't wake up in a jail cell one day after almost taking my own life and temporarily losing all that I love and discover or decide on my own that there's a God. You know, he sent his son as a savior. And yes, I need to follow and surrender to him in totality. It didn't happen that way. It's, you know, faith is revealed and it must have some promise of God as its foundation. You know, it's not simply a jump into a deep abyss. It insists on sure evidence. And so we find this initial spark of evidence in the Word of God. Yes. Yes. And you know, that reminds me, and just thinking about that, that we can look like um, the fig tree looked like a fig tree from a distance. And you see the leaves. and at some point, though, that tree was to a certain extent called into account. It was demanded a fruit. And, and when someone came to partake of fruit, there was no fruit to be found. And it's just a reminder in our lives to be sure that we're concentrating on the fruit and not just the leaves. That also makes me think of 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, that the work that we do, the way we live our lives, our testimony to our salvation, our transformation and following of Christ, when it's tested, it endures. Amen. So the second lesson that we gather from this message is that the tree represented Israel. God had done so much for Israel, and they were spiritually blessed, yet they were barren. There was no spiritual fruit. Unless Israel repented, there would be judgment. And sadly, there was. Wow. Now, doesn't that hit home a bit? I mean, look at the situation of the United States where Barbara and I live. Look at the situation in the world, even. We've been squeezed with adversity and separated from the many distractions that ensnare us. And God is giving us an opportunity, an opportunity for revival, opportunity for commission, and even a, a form of awakening. How long will God withhold judgment from us? The time for that revival is now. Do we really realize the direness of the situation we're in? And if we do, are we addressing it or are we trying to push it down and pretend it's not happening? Revival always begins with revelation. There must be an examination of self. 
But God has provided us with a remarkable opportunity, a great commission. For some of us, the time to act on that is right now. And for the rest of us, we must verify that what we are standing on is firmly planted and rooted in Him so that one, we can endure, and two, that we can be useful witnesses for His kingdom in all of this. The world needs us. See, this faith thing, we've complicated it. We've rearranged it, redefined it, and shuffled it into some techniques, magic formulas, esoteric words, and even new age read abominable methods. We've forgotten to take the Lord our God into account, bypassing him completely as the authority over our lives and have said, I want this thing and I claim it. And if I believe hard enough and not doubt, I will speak it into existence and I will have it. And God must do it because I have done all the right things as if I have the formula. It doesn't work Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. God will answer your sincere prayers, but he does not answer to you or to me. And the very thought of us placing these formulas, these calculations and just the right steps and demands on him should terrify us to the very core, causing us to tremble. Do we not know who he is? Mm. Faith's number one agenda, our number one agenda is to be thy will, O God. When you want me to wait, I'll wait. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Whenever you want me to move, I'll move. Hallelujah. Yes. Wow. So I emulate one man's declaration of faith saying, you know, God bring revival and may it begin with me. It's kind of like I've prayed for my children, you know, on occasions, you know, whatever it takes, Lord, bring them to repentance. Mm. Bring them to faith, a total surrender to you. The slightest glance in faith's direction reveals a suggestion of the impossible, perhaps becoming possible. After all, if it's in the realm of possibility, there is no need for faith. And in this type, grand finale sings no glory for God. The world says, seeing is believing. But God says, believing is seeing. Amen. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by this. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So, you know, is our faith only solely in our faith or is our faith in Christ alone? Are we drawing our nourishment and supply from the taproot Jesus himself? If Christ were to walk up close and examine our spiritual fruit and trees, our very lives, would he be blessed and not curse our efforts? Will we hear well done or depart from me? Does our prayer sound like, Lord, help me to repent, place total faith in you alone, and may revival come in me first and then through me. Thanks for listening. 
coming up next, the will of God and His providence over our lives, while exploring examples from Hebrews 11 in Stepping Out into the Hand of God. More coming up right after this. I'm frequently asked, what resources do you use to study the Bible? One resource I use almost every single day, whether on my laptop or cell phone, is Bible Gateway. As the internet's largest Christian website, Bible Gateway seeks to equip people to read and understand the Bible wherever they are. Celebrating more than 25 years online, Bible Gateway offers free access to the Bible in more than 200 different versions and more than 70 languages. Bible Gateway's website and app are visited by more than 20 million unique visitors per month. If you desire to obtain easier access to Bible translations and make your studies simpler, try Bible Gateway at www.biblegateway.com. Hey ladies, God himself has given his stamp of approval regarding the faith of some. We have many examples we can glean from in the scriptures. You've heard of the Hall of Fame, right? Most would love their name to be found there. But have you heard of the Hall of Faith? It's kind of like the honor roll of faith listed by God himself. Shouldn't the highest, most coveted accolade be to please God, to bring him pleasure? There's an entire list of heroes and even a couple heroines of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11. Mm, Yes, and this is such a special passage. And it's no wonder that our research on faith leads us here right to the very heart of the Christian life. For there is no Christian life without faith. These examples of faith in Hebrews 11 are a spiritual faith, a faith so deep and abiding in God that natural man cannot comprehend. Yeah, so these all walked by faith and not by sight. They all desired a better place, a heavenly one. So I won't take the time to read the entire passage, but there are seven verses in Hebrews 11, a resume, if you will, dedicated to reasons these are honored for their faith, like conquering kingdoms, administering justice, obtaining promises, shutting the mouths of lions, quenching raging fires, escaping the edge of the sword, gaining strength after being weak, becoming mighty in battle, putting foreign armies to flight, or just some that are mentioned. In Hebrews eleven sixteen, it says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Wow, they were approved through their faith, believing and waiting and living their lives as if God's promises were true. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to be ashamed of me. I want to live my life in faith. Again, there's not time to detail everyone on the list, but a few I'd like to highlight so we can glean a bit as to why and what gave these the place in the faith line. And so Abel, he was murdered, as you know, by his brother Cain for his offering that he made in faith. And we learn from him that biblical faith-filled pilgrimage is sometimes gruesome and costly proclaiming even from the ground, if the worst comes as a result of your faith, it will be rewarded. Noah, he expressed faith when he believed God and he built the ark, having never seen rainfall, yet being warned of a worldwide flood, likely making him the poor end of many jokes. 
but only eight people were right and the rest perished. Noah and his household were rewarded and the world condemned by his life and testimony. He became an heir of righteousness based on his faith, which lives on. And when Paul reminds the Jewish Christians and us in 1 Peter 3.20 says, In the days of Noah, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. But God protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Absolutely. And this example of Noah reminds us that faith will always lead us to do something. Yeah. So just think of all the amazing things Moses did and God accomplished through him. You know, standing on holy ground while witnessing a burning bush that was not being consumed obtaining the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, literally written by the finger of God, including in Exodus 33, Moses even desires to see God. Moses asks, now please show me your glory. Um, You know, one of my deepest desires and greatest anticipation is to one day see God. Wow, the pure in heart shall see God. Matthew 5, 8 tells us. But it wasn't any of these mind-blowing, probably tinkling my pants, witnessing events, which Moses made the list and God commemorated him for. It was um, by faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. It says that Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invincible. So by faith he instituted the Passover, and by the sprinkling of blood crossing the Red Sea, and included, which strikes my heart the most, is this. So Hebrews eleven twenty four. it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose to suffer with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward, an important aspect of walking with God, pleasing him, demonstrating faith as refusing to find our identity in and with who and that which conforms to and represents the worldly, short-lived pleasures and treasures of the world and sin. One commentary stated it like this, instead of being found in a museum as an Egyptian mummy, Moses is famous as a man of God. So the contempt and the reprehension and rejection of people in this life is nothing compared to the reward coming. This, ladies, is what God honors and who he places as a hero in his hall of faith. So I definitely want to highlight uh, the two ladies on the list. Um, Sarah, she was past the time that she could bear children, but by faith, Miraculously, she conceived when she was about 90 years old. Now, remember, at first she laughed and she prompted Abraham to know her handmaiden, Hagar, in order to conceive, you know, as if God wasn't on time or at least on her schedule. She still makes it into this hall of faith. And there's Rahab, uh, the prostitute uh, known as the harlot, even though it's unknown when exactly she became a believer and abandoned the false religions of Canaan. But when she was tested, she proved to be loyal and true to the Lord. 
and stand on his side, and by so doing, betraying her country, she received the spies and not perishing with those who disobeyed. And so we also see Lois and Eunice um, in 2 Timothy 1, 4 through 7. But we see through these that there is always so much at stake by exercising our faith, belief in and obedience to God and his word and direction. But there's blessing from God. Amen. Amen to that and all of that. (laughs) And in light of talking about these examples, I'm thinking of Sarah, and you can't think of Sarah without thinking about Abraham. They kind of go hand in hand in so many ways. And while Abraham did step out in faith, going to the place God promised him, his faith was not perfect. Abraham first went halfway to where God called him and only eventually obeyed completely. Yet thousands of years later, God did not remember the delayed obedience, only the faith. Also, Abraham lived as a sojourner in the land God promised, never owning any of it except the plots that he and Sarah were buried on. Dwelt translates the ancient Greek word periokos, describing a resident alien, one who lives somewhere but doesn't have permanent status there. And note the interpretation, the description of a sojourner is witnessed, the way one talks, the way they dress, their mannerisms, their entertainment, their citizenship, and their friends. It all speaks of their native home. If someone is the same in all these areas as the natives, They're no longer sojourners. They're permanent residents. And Christians shouldn't live as if they're permanent residents of planet Earth. They dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob because they had no permanent home. They lived in tents instead of houses, looking forward to a better city, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Right. So Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, leads right into Hebrews 12. One and two, it says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Amen. And in light of looking to Jesus, of laying aside the weights and running the race, we're tempted to ponder, well, what is God's will for my life? Isn't it interesting to observe these examples in the hall of faith and realize that they were unable to discern the will of God in its entirety until they looked back and then they marveled. I've heard that the reasons why we put so much energy and focus into discerning the will of God for our lives is because either A, we don't fully trust God and we need to know where he's taking us, or B, we glory in thinking that we're sensitive enough to hear from God. And while I absolutely believe this to be true and applicable really to all of us, I also wonder if we've been misdirected into thinking we're supposed to pursue the will of God by knowing exactly what it is the will of God is for our life. Hmm. We've spent so much energy in trying to see that and get that vision. 
so that we may carefully walk in it, and we've wasted precious time in doing so. The will of God for our lives is for us to seek and obey Him, and He has revealed His will in His precious Word. I'll say it again and again, that same rhetoric. It's not a secret hidden from us or made only for the intellectual to interpret. But to fixate on perceiving His will ahead of time is equated so much with us and our ability. If we put that effort into praying to Him, and we focus on asking for guidance and obeying His written will, He will lead us. Even if He doesn't speak to us directly, He will lead us and we will know it is His will as He takes us to where He wants us to go. Let us not trust in our ability to hear, but instead trust in God's ability to lead. So again, God's will for our life is to obey the commands of God. We can leave the rest to Him. We don't have to figure it out. Isn't that a relief? Amen. There's no longer the pressure to figure out what special plan God has for us. Oh, He has special plans for you, all right. But you won't find them if you're just trying to peek ahead. I feel like as I say that, I'm speaking directly to myself because for years I pursued this and I just wanted to know what God's plans were for me so that I could line everything up and measure and act according to his, the supposed plan I thought it may be or didn't know. But I think the intentions in that, they're well-meaning, but it just doesn't work that way. God reveals his perfect providence and hand upon our lives as we look back and see that in the pathways where we were just following God, doing what he said, obeying his word, seeking him, trusting him. It's then we begin to see, wow, look at what God was doing. Look at how he was preparing me. Look at how he was training me. He was covering me. That's what that was for. We will find the will of God in these moments. Remember, Abraham didn't know where he was going. He couldn't possibly fathom the extent to where his obedience to God reached, even well into the 21st century. Yet all he did was seek, listen, and obey God step by step. Let us trust in the great ability of God to lead. We should be optimistic about every work of God because everything he does, he finishes. Yes, absolutely. I know I was taught that God grants us just enough light to take the next step. And when we take that step, he illuminates more of the path. <laughs> so um, remember in Romans 12 too, it tells us that we are not to be conformed to this age, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So what would being a hero in the faith look like today? Huge crowds, fancy top-of-the-line cars and clothes and jets, gorgeous sanctuaries and buildings, signs, miracles, and wonders, lots of lights and stages, vast array of instruments and trained voices. Yeah, does your outward gift reveal your inward faith? 
Are we being deceptive through playing the part and putting on the front, but not producing real spiritual fruit? When your living faith is walked out, does it stimulate faith in others, like when reading the Hall of Faith is designed to do for us today? Finally, what is it we may have faith in, which is faulty and failing us? Have you tapped into the true root, Jesus himself, so you can be nourished with real faith? Once again, we thank you for joining us in this series. Coming up next, Measures of Faith, Casting Mountains into the Sea. More coming up right after this. Looking to take your Bible reading to a deeper level? Check out the Blue Letter Bible, an online Bible-centered resource of study tools linked directly to Bible passages, including commentaries, encyclopedias, maps, images, and much more. Your daily Bible reading will come alive as you explore the context of passages by expounding upon text and audio commentaries, search scriptures, and examine the original meaning of Hebrew and Greek words utilizing the lexicon feature. So, if you're wanting to dive deeper into understanding God's Word, download the Blue Letter Bible app or visit blueletterbible.org. Did you know the Bible talks about there being different measures of faith? You know, we read statements like, ye of little faith, or faith as small as a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds. Jesus himself tells a woman, you have great faith. And to another, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. You know, we've already addressed how God really is after our faith and is pleased by us living and exercising our faith, trusting Him in all things, evidenced by acting and moving in obedience to all He has commanded. Perhaps you felt as the disciples did when they boldly yet humbly stated, increase our faith. We all would like great faith, faith that will move mountains. And God has given each of His children a certain measure of faith, which He expects us to use exercise and operate in our spiritual gifts. Uh, Apparently, we all don't have the same allotment, however. Faith is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In 1 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, I say to everyone among you to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Mm, Praise God. And I'm so thankful to be given a measure of faith. I need that. And I need God's gift of giving to me the measure of faith I need for today. And I'll expound more on that in our last segment of this series when we get into confidence in faith. But for now, I'll say that I love that I can ask for faith today. Yes. That the Lord will help me if I'm struggling even with a little bit. I think we had these moments of help my unbelief and wherever we are in our growing of faith, maybe we're like that more often, or maybe we feel that we're at an area where we ask that less and less and our faith is growing. But it's such a blessing that every day, all day, if we want to, as much as we want to, God is readily available to listen to us and delights in us asking things of him, especially things according to this. Help me to have more faith to believe in you, your truth, your promises. 
And I can ask it again and again, knowing that the Lord will provide. And not only does he not get bothered by my impetuous asking, but he freely and cheerfully grants it to me. I'm so wonderfully dependent upon his gifts, and it is readily and exceedingly available to all who will ask him. So for those who have faith in God, great things will happen. Let us live our life in a way that we're seeking and trusting him in all things, and we will see him move. Now, at the beginning of this series, I spoke from Matthew 21. Now, we spoke about the fig tree and why Jesus performed this remarkably destructive miracle of cursing this tree, which had the pretense of fruit and yet not possessing it. And now we'll focus on some of our favorite parts, casting mountains into the sea, powerful faith without doubt. And as verse 22 continues, in all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. This gets us excited as we ponder what is the potential of faith? God is limitless. So can our prayers be limitless? Let's explore. Verse 23 describes a mountain. Well, what is a mountain? Mountains represented here are massive difficulties, impossible for us to handle. It's sitting there firmly planted in the way. Now, some mountains are meant to be climbed. Some mountains are meant to go around or plow through. Yet once in a while, God plants a mountain in front of us that absolutely blocks the view of everything else ahead of us. This one, we can't climb. We can't get around or even blast through. It simply must move. Now, listen, honey, you cannot move this mountain on your own. And you can only avoid it for so long. But even then, you find yourself confronted with this mountain. You can hardly even move forward. And we ourselves will not move these mountains, but God will. And as we pray and seek him, we'll see them move aside. He will either change our circumstances or he will change us by the circumstances. Wow. Yeah, he's definitely uh, come through for me, moving things about in my life that I could not on my own. Mm. Um, you know, so I was raised up and taught, discipled spiritually, mostly through what has been termed exegetically. Okay, so exegesis uh, comes from the Greek word for interpret, and it is often defined as a critical look at or interpretation or an explanation of a text. And so, you know, I was influenced and taught from the very beginning of my walk with Christ and entering a church body a few things. And so this approach helps to sort of pound out and prevent settling for false theologies um, these are especially helpful when dealing with a topical theme like what we're talking about today, faith, for example, um, or sincerely desiring to understand the spiritual truths and meanings of passages in Scripture and certainly decisions pertaining to the will of God. So now I've not done this perfectly, uh, nor have I taken the time it requires to always study all of these out, but they are ingrained into my discipleship, okay, from the very start. And I'm so thankful for that. And so there are three sifters or scales in which to weigh, so to speak, when coming to study and understand and in setting out to rightly divide 
the word of God, uh, know the will of God and have the mind of Christ, etc. And so the first one, um, and there's been more and more talk of this, thankfully, is context. Okay. And uh, number two would be culture, um, including the original language um, of a text, the Hebrew, Aramaic, or the Greek. And then these first two, thankfully, like I said, are becoming more and more practiced. And um, But there's still another one which has to be taken into consideration. And so that would be what I call counsel, uh, the entire counsel of the Word of God about a particular thing or subject. And so not only do we consider the context of a verse, you know, resisting cherry picking and basing our belief and our doctrine and heaven forbid our life decisions on one verse, uh, but we also, and perhaps not to the same degree, but it is valid, uh, the culture of the day in which the text is addressing and being written to, but also we must consider the whole counsel, okay, of the Word of God. For example, you know, before recording this episode, knowing we would be discussing faith, I looked up every place in God's Word where faith is mentioned, all right? And then I began reading and studying and formulating what I would share directly from God's word and from the deeper study of, of his word. So we have to keep in mind that we all bring to the table biases, uh, which we are aware or maybe not so aware of. Um, we have a tendency to think our way, you know, viewing things is, is the right way. And these come from the way we're raised and where we went to school, how our parents and leaders taught us and what denomination and church um, that we frequent. And this absolutely affects the way that we approach, interpret Bible stories, texts, and truths. And so one purpose for exegesis helps us to interpret texts by providing tools which help us work and derive the true meaning of the text by raising awareness, the biases which, we, uh, which may be influencing the way we read the text, uh, the way we acknowledge it, um, and yet it transforms our bias to the truth of God's word. And so may we all begin to do this uh, when we observe such important topics such as faith. I think that's so helpful that you do that and you spell that out for our audience, because I do believe that there are women out there who want to figure out how can they know more how can they be sure that what they're reading, that they are interpreting in the correct way? How do they understand context? And I think that is a very helpful takeaway that is not so much that uh, clearly here we don't have the time to go into a deep dive in how to do this in a very academic way, so to speak, but that is very applicable to our listeners. And I think that's really awesome that you bring that up. Amen. Thanks, Jess. There's been such an assault on defining or describing faith, and so many are being led astray into feelings of guilt, into 
directly into idolatry, to mysticism, and all kinds of shades of ridiculousness. So we want mm. to take a little time to explore what Jesus was not saying in these passages. First of all, he was not implying that our prayers are a blank check. He writes for us to cash in whatever we want. And we've allowed some pretty crazy theories to blanket our TVs and airways, preaching some sort of prosperity anointing on God's people as if these are biblical principles. Now, one might point to Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you or Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not harm, just good things, hope and future and use examples of the lives of Joseph, uh, King Solomon, David and Job, etc. as examples of people who were blessed. Uh, some will even consider that if they're blessed, let's say they're blessed financially, even um, health wise or different versions of prosperity, that they will be a blessing to others. So therefore, it's God's will that they be blessed and have a life of blessing so that they may bless. Yet juxtaposed against the verses of 1 Timothy 6, 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. 1 Timothy 6, 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It can get a little muddy here. So to answer the question, does God want us to be rich, successful, healthy, and wealthy? Can we name it and claim it? Do we just need to have faith and have more faith and not doubt? Then God will act in our favor. The Bible has much to say about wealth, health, and prosperity and addresses man's seemingly constant struggle between desiring to acquire it and paradoxically dying to self. Mm. And yes, there are many examples of wealthy and prosperous people in the Bible that God used in great ways. However, was their lives then a life of relaxation, happiness, and ease? Let's quickly look further into them. What did God require of them? These people, for example, had riches and success. Abraham, who was wealthy, he was instructed to leave his country and loved ones to blindly relocate to an unknown place for an unknown time. Moses traded the environment of a beautiful palace, comfortable living in esteemed position to risk his life before Pharaoh and lead a huge, often grumpy, ornery and ungrateful group of people who often wanted to overtake him or stone him. And for 40 mm. years wandered in a hot, dusty desert, unknowing where the next food or water would come from. Joseph. We know the story. He was betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, tasted the sweetness of success as Potiphar's assistant, only to be thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit and be forgotten about. Job, often used for his suffering as an example, he was wealthy, successful, walked uprightly with God, and then in a swoop of bad occurrences, lost all 10 of his children, his property, possessions, health, and even his desire to live. David was a prosperous king of Israel, who after being anointed as the future king of Israel as a young lad, waited 25 years before it actually happened. In those 25 years, he experienced hunger, thirst, uncertainty, constant and blatant reality of death, yet wrote, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And then my last example, Solomon, uh, just the prime example of wealth, success, the wisest man. 
the great king of Israel who built the temple and was esteemed as the most wealthy and the wisest man ever known. Yet ironically, as his request for wisdom was pleasing to God, he was not like his father, a man after God's heart. And this began to show later in his life through his indulgences that angered God and brought great strife to his lineage. Although the Lord burned with anger over Solomon because of my servant, David, God spared Solomon from taking away what he had promised David. But later on, Solomon lamented of his pursuit of worldly vanity in Ecclesiastes. So this somewhat piggybacks on our last segment when we were discussing the Hall of Faith. Interesting to note, if one had met Job, think about this, if one had met Job after God restored him, or Moses before he fled Egypt, what would their perception of them be? Or to reverse, if one only knew David as he was in Gath, so rebelling against God, hiding away, or Job on the roadside, covered in sores, then what would their interpretation of them be? Our lives on this side of heaven are a series of high and low points, and one can never truly begin to understand the glory of God's intervention in one's life without understanding a greater scope of context. And as seen in these examples, there is a constant juxtaposition between acquiring treasures, success, good health, power, abundant living, and dying to self, suffering, surrender of control. As a side note, the Beatitudes are a wonderful example of this. Again, we see that there is a heavy battle between desiring worldly gain or desiring even good things in life and surrendering ourselves to God's perfect will for us, for our true better good. And the Bible is filled with examples, reminders and encouragements to stay focused on the work in the fields of the harvest. And I'm sad to state that I think that many of us Christians have gotten it wrong. We want to acquire great things, even to the point of promising we will glorify God through it. If you just give me this, if you just sustain me with this or take care of this, I will do that. Yet, are we really ready to be tested for such things? Do we know what it takes to be used for greatness according to God's standard. Many Christians caught up in the ideas of prosperity, of great health and success, risk the distraction of receiving tangible earthly blessings, whether it be wealth, health, success, recognition, etc., that the eternal blessings of God, divine wisdom, contentment, peace through trials and beyond, purpose-filling responsibilities, pure confidence through seeking and obedience, rewards in heaven, I could go on. If only we believed and applied seeking first the kingdom of God, what blessings he would lavish upon his children. Now, I, I don't want to diminish someone's suffering, and I want to be very careful here because I know that there are ladies listening, uh, potentially ladies listening, and and if not them, then someone they know they love who is really suffering. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are people still very sick, could be all sorts of other diseases and ailments, but people are suffering. And I'm not in any way trying to put that exactly in the same box of seeking success or seeking wealth or other things. I think it's so 
easy sometimes that um, just in a desire, crying out to the Lord for relief, crying out in despair and longing for redemption from that, that it can be hard to let that go and let God. And I want to respect that while still uh, discussing some of these things. So I hope I can put that disclaimer on there that I do not ever mean to be insensitive or diminish someone suffering in any way. But we must remember, daughters, that God is so much higher than we. And therefore, his gifts, his perfect plan and purpose, specifically designed for us, far surpass the ideas of reward we ponder for ourselves. He has such great plans for us, and we have such sparse, meager plans for ourselves. Yeah, so it seems society and cultures use their own type of measuring stick. And most define and measure the things you mentioned, prosperity, success, blessings, wealth, even health knowing or unknowingly by a worldly standard completely different than that of a biblical perspective health and healing is a huge topic uh, in its possible definitions and implications as believers we really need to consider what we talked about a bit earlier not only the context of passages but the entire counsel of god's word in order to gain a true and total picture of these things you know, I hear and witness quite a bit the absence of any notion, mention, consideration, or even acknowledgement of God's will, or that God even has a will of his own, or, you know, his will be done is completely left out from prayers and intentions. And it's replaced, you know, with my will, what I want and desire in this situation, what I command and will into existence, and what I think is best as if faith and authority in Christ means I'm now omniscient or omnipotent like God. So when we solely seek healing from pain and suffering over or in place of seeking and knowing God himself, his greater character and hope building purposes through the pain, or instead of the most important emphasis being salvation, which we know and understand comes by way of repentance and faith in Christ alone, um, and often through these tremendous trials, hardships, and sufferings. How many stories have we heard testifying of how being broken brought someone ultimately to having ears to hear the gospel and receiving saving faith, or how someone had never felt the presence of God and the peace of God so intensely and thoroughly than when they were suffering through sickness or had illness or cancer or any number of things like that. So when we only place certain pieces of a puzzle together, there's holes, there's gaps and missing parts. And the beauty in the true biblical message and purpose comes when we find and put all the intended pieces in their rightful places. And I'm speaking about spiritual truths, theologies, and doctrines. I would encourage all of us, myself included, to search the scriptures in an even greater manner in a greater urgency and in entirety, especially when referencing healing, miracles, and what we're talking about, God's will. Mm, yeah, girl. If we were in fact able to ask for anything we want persistently enough and it be granted, 
would likely ask to be free from all sickness, all unhappiness, all discomfort, even when we need suffering to keep us humble, spiritually strong and God-dependent. We'd choose to not have to endure it. I know I'd choose to not have to endure it. <laughs> yeah, more than likely. Yes. And I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 8 and 9, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. This is Paul speaking, uh, that we were pressed out of measure above strength in so much that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. He also learned a lesson in overcoming self-dependence and instead depending on God, which made him spiritually strong. And without these sufferings to strengthen him, to challenge him, he would have likely been weak and ineffective, at least not nearly as effective as he was. Let us find great comfort in the fact that God is one who will say no to us when what we want will hinder or hurt us. So often it is God who places the mountain in our path. And these mountains are necessary. This brings me to 2 Corinthians 12, 7, 10. Paul speaking again. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He said, lest I be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. Wow. That I begin to think highly of myself or become prideful that I am ultra special or holy according to my own work or my work higher than others. God keeps us humble and submitted to him. And yet look what God did through this one man. The Lord delights in our weakness for when we are weak. We're ready to listen. We're primed and motivated to act more than we would otherwise act. We're willing to go farther. Speaking of spiritual giftings, um, these can seem to create a playground, uh, sometimes for pride, self-exaltation. Uh, we know what happened with Lucifer, but like you said, God knows how and he will keep us each humble before him and dependent on him. So bringing us back around to the idea of measures of faith. And there's a passage in Romans 12, one through eight, beginning uh, context, verse one, referring to offering our bodies as living sacrifices and not conforming to this world, being transformed by renewing our minds so that we may know what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. And then it goes right into some spiritual gifts, verses three through six, it's directly in line with measure of faith, humility, and God's will. Uh, so three through six, therefore, by the grace given to me, 
I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. And now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, according to the grace given to us. We have different gifts. Have you ever prayed that the Lord move you out of the way of something, that he be glorified? If so, then I imagine you were not surprised when he did exactly that. I had that very same scenario little more than a year ago. I'm writing a huge docuseries right now, and as I seek more and more, just God's leading in this, as I continue to wade farther and further into the process and realizing where this is going to go, one of my prayers along the way has been that very thing. Lord, take me out of it. Use me and use this for your glory. Don't let me get in the way. You know, all those things. Well, at times I would have these big ideas and I still do. And uh, there was one time in particular, I remember, and it's been more than once, but I would think, Lord, whoa, that is crazy for that to come together. Oh, so much will have to happen. It's just about impossible. Like, wow, <laughs> there's no way I can accomplish this huge thing. No way. And it was like the Lord was impressing on my heart. Exactly. This is what you prayed for. He will yeah. move me out of the way and he will bless my obedience. As long as I remain in him, seeking him, consulting, obeying, that's my responsibility to press into him and let him work. Because when I am weak, when I don't know where this is all going to come from, I, when I don't know how one person is going to think these things or execute it and everything in between wonderful. Now he has room to work because then we will verify that this is God's will, because if it's God's will, then it will happen. And if it's not, if it goes down, then we go down with it. So I'm perfectly fine with that. And, you know, it's just been years of training that the Lord trained me to seek his will. If I can learn that, and live that, then I have peace. But praise God that he answers those prayers. Now, in thinking of things like affliction, I'd like to quote this beautiful quote um, from Robert Murray McShann. Affliction brings out graces that cannot be seen in a time of health. It is the treading of the grapes that brings out the sweet juices of the vine. So it is affliction that draws forth submission weanness from the world and complete rest in God. Use afflictions while you have them. So what do you believe about faith? What biases might we be approaching the word of God with? Like topics such as faith or success or healing. Are we putting together all the biblical puzzle pieces so as to see the beautiful full picture in God's perspective? How may God be refining your faith. Thanks for spending your time with us. Coming up next, walking in the faith, tried, tested, and true. More coming up right after this. If everyone is called to make and multiply disciples, everyone should be trained. 
Hi, my name is Mark Gearing, and you can find us at Multiplying Disciples on YouTube. And we put together some of the best tools we could find to help anybody get started in making disciples and help their disciples make disciples. So we would love to help you get started to reach those right around you and help you train them to multiply and reach the nations. Welcome back, ladies. In our last segment, we spoke about faith and moving mountains. And in this segment, We'd like to open it up with a question. Do you believe God is who he says he is? Yeah. And how do you know your faith is real and lasting faith? You know, at what point in your life did you have to trust God the most? And how did you respond? And how did he come through? There will certainly be opportunities for our faith to be tried and tested in its resolution. It's not if, it's when situations and storms are sifted through the powerful, sovereign hands of God, our Father, and allowed to seep into our lives. And when they do, faith responds, how can I respond to this in such a way and by doing proves my faith and belief in God to be true and my Savior to be tremendously present in my time of need? And in the end, bringing his beautiful purpose into and out of this hard thing, placing his glory and ultimate goodness on display. You know, when these circumstances come, there can be a tendency toward or a default of doubt. Question after question after question, like, you know, when I ask God why, when my children were taken, it's not wrong to have questions and pour your heart out to the Lord and to God. Remember all Job's dialogue? Yet we can proclaim, you know, like Paul in faith in 2 Timothy 1.12, that is why I am suffering as I am, being an apostle and teacher of the gospel. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This really is what God is after in us and from us, our faith. It is what pleases him when we believe him, trust him, and act like we do in everything that we do in faith. And why? Because the whole goal of faith is our salvation. Listen to 1 Peter 1. 3 through 9. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes through refined, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him though you have never seen him. And though you though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. And so there's also this aspect of proving our faith to be true, which demands it to be alive and to work its way into good works. James 2, 17 through 26, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show your faith from my works. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? So every act of obedience requires a step of faith. Everything God asks of us and from us, faith is a requirement. You know, he is faithful to call us, prepare us, mercifully confirm through his word, his people and his spirit. However, it always demands an act of faith from us. Mm -hmm. Often in times of stress and difficulty, we learn our greatest lessons. For that is often when God breaks through in our lives and shows us something new for His purposes. If you were to examine your faith, would you say it's a little faith, a struggling faith, or that you're just stepping into great faith? Do things that used to shake you up no longer ruffle you? You immediately give it over to the Lord, trusting He's going to take care of it? As we discuss living out our faith, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk wrestled with God in deep theological issues, but embraced God with a life that was in tune for his purposes for him. Habakkuk had a burden, not only in the sense of being a messenger and and delivering a message from God, but also in the sense of just this really heavy weight. It was heavy in its content because Habakkuk announced God's coming judgment on Judah. It was also heavy in its source because Habakkuk deals with tough questions he brings to God and with God's answer to those questions. Habakkuk is an example for his direction of focus in a time where he just doesn't understand what God is doing. His focus is on the Lord. He looks to the Lord for answers. And focus is extremely important in faith. What am I focusing on? Am I focusing on the problem, on my circumstances, my situation, all the good things I've done to not deserve what's happening to me? Am I focusing on the perseverance of others, what I'm not getting? Or am I focusing on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith? Yet Habakkuk was honest with his Lord saying, Father, I cannot understand. And God responds to such honesty. And it is really nonsense to think of him otherwise. He already knows our thoughts. He doesn't need our platitudes and empty cliches or fancy wording or us to hold it back. But he wants us to respectfully communicate with him. So looking at Habakkuk 2. Just the beginning here, verses one and four, or one through four. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. 
For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. You know, he says, I will stand. This is a visual of him taking a step back. Perhaps we would describe it as zooming out, but the ancient visual of this is climbing up to get a better view of the situation, like the watchman on the wall. Also, by taking this stance, he's choosing to remain set apart from that that has taken place in the city. From there, he can see the people going about in the marketplace, minding their own business, doing their own things. And yet he is not in the marketplace. Our stand affects our view. Additionally, we see he's looking to the Lord for an answer. He says, I will watch. Again, his focus is on the object of our faith, the Lord. And it's in these moments that we don't understand. We're seeking answers. We can step back. We can zoom out to get a better focus. Then we can ask the Lord to show us, to help us understand, to give us instruction. Lord, speak to me. I'm willing. May you have mercy on me and show me. Lead me, guide me, and direct and order my steps, Lord. The next part of verse 3 says, Though it tarry, wait for it. And other versions say, If it seems slow, or if it delays, to wait for it. Some things only eternity will reveal, and some things are for now, but whenever, whatever, whoever it is for, we wait on the Lord. Amen. Yeah. And sometimes that stepping back is just to be able to uh, get God's perspective on the situation. And so, you know, there's going to be, and there's going to come, if they haven't already, very painful moments, even when we're faced with the perfect sovereign will of God for our lives, we can still have questions for God and approach Him, cry out and ask a vast array of questions like I shared in episode two, when my girls were taken, yet we can still remain faithful and obedient in what he has asked us to do in those moments and seasons. You know, we're all familiar with Job's dialogue with God. Um, and, and also in Psalm 22, one, David asked, why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? And probably the most precious, perfect example, and Jesus asked in the garden, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. And then from the cross, he asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Last week, I received a call and it was the administrator of the nursing home where my biological mother resides. Um, and the administrator was on the other end, calmly informing me that my mother had tested positive for COVID-19. Um, and she was among 26 positives in the nursing home where she lives, and that there had already been six deaths so far. And so in a moment like this, you know, many thoughts begin to swirl in my mind, you know, how did she acquire it? How bad are her symptoms? How is she responding emotionally and physically? And Ultimately, will she survive? And so I became instantly thankful for the recent visit we had enjoyed 
um, and the Holy Spirit nudged me last minute at that day to journey that 512 miles and those eight hour and 32 minute round trip to visit her uh, a couple months ago. And, you know, of course, I began praying and asking others to pray. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, when we're faced with these things, you know, where is my faith going to lie? Who am I going to place faith in, in this moment? Um, in the doctors, you know, in the diagnosis, how does faith work its way out in my real everyday life? And so, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, I received an update um, this week that she's now asymptomatic in the nursing home remains on quarantine status. But the point is that we walked through that diagnosis and that trial. We were not spared from the situation. You know, we prayed for healing, um, and, but we also resolved through it to accept whatever God's will is. Mm, amen. And praise God for just answering prayers. Yes. I know we learned about that. Uh, I'm saying we being <laughs> many others that you shared this with uh, just a few days ago. And we've been praying for uh, your family and praying for your mom and just praising God for that. And we'll continue to pray. Thank you. you know, as um, you all navigate this, it is a trial. You know, and, and just getting through it and, and just seeking the Lord along the way. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. So this also makes me think about just that process of waiting when you don't know the answers. I know we're using uh, a, a couple of examples here. What you and your family have been through this last week of what Habakkuk was thinking. He didn't understand, but he's resolved to look and to wait on the Lord. And in thinking of waiting, one thing in particular, I've been blessed to work with a lot of people and on different teams in my life. And ironically, I guess uh, one of my pet peeves is starting meetings late. <laughs> and I know this sounds like I'm going in a completely different direction, but I'm not entirely. So just get on this horse with me. <laughs> so, Okay. So about meetings and starting them late. Um, I, I'm just a firm believer that if you call a meeting, you encourage everyone to get there early or be punctual and you begin on time and then you respect everyone's time by ending on time so that those that need to get going can do so. And the ones who like to sit and talk further are free to do so. <laughs> so I've really grown to appreciate punctuality. Um, Barbara, I think you know. <laughs> are you talking to me? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So guys, we have this inside joke and, and you can probably tell by just our, just our deliveries that Barbara and I, God has placed us together in such a neat way. And I'm so thankful for it, but, um, I, I know I have this high energy kind of just let's go kind of pace. And Barbara is like so relaxingly chill. <laughs> like Barbara, it's fun to talk to you and listen to you and get to know you because even when we're casually talking and we're not recording or anything, you're just like so like calm and it is <laughs> relaxing. And I am aware at least enough that I'm not so much, at least I don't default that way. 
So we just have a lot of fun with that, that I'm like, I want something done. I want it done yesterday. And Barbara's like, hey, take your time. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we, there are strengths in both of it. Um, And I think somewhere, somehow God uses that to have us just meet right in the right place. So I really appreciate that. But that's all the laughing that's going on, particularly with Barbara. You might note that I wasn't laughing, but (laughs) so back to my meeting that I got everybody on my horse and now we're riding off into the sunset with this thing. So yes, I've grown to really appreciate punctuality, but here's the ironic part. It's that really before I turned 30, I'm I'm 38 now. (laughs) (laughs) I used to be late to everything. I was always late, always coming in like on two wheels. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, Showing up like with damp hair and a giant sweet tea back when I used to drink that stuff like water. And um Oh, I wish I could go back to my early employers, you know, when I was in my 20s and apologize to them. I know it's a stretch, but if you're listening, I'm sorry, okay? I've learned (laughs) my ways, I repent. But I think the change began when I was feeling frustrated with myself. Like once again, I just get worked up into this tizzy and create this stress for myself because now I'm late. And and I just think, why am I always so late? What, What is the deal? And somehow I made a connection that I don't like to wait. I don't like to be early. I'm not one of those people that like to just show up and sit around and just wait on everything um, or for something to start. I don't, I just dislike it. I'm not proud of it. I'm just being very honest here. Um, I don't like to be idle when I could be doing something else. I always have something else I can be doing. At least I naturally think that that's not always true. Um, And there's things I'd rather do, or I think I should do. And I therefore have a difficulty remaining still. This is something that the Lord has had to um, help me with. And I think he's also brought Barbara into my life. (laughs) So it was in this realization that the Lord helped me to correct this on really an easy level, because correcting punctuality is much easier than, say, waiting on that job to come through or for that cancer to clear, or that house to sell, or that child to come to the Lord, whatever it is. But God has promised to be faithful as we wait upon Him. Has He ever failed? Does He ignore us? And does He not love us? I mean, we can ask these questions and say, of course not. But I will say, by the way, if you can't answer these questions, like I just said, and say, of course not, on a personal level, and I'm not talking about on a general level, oh, God loves everybody, and and of course he doesn't because I've been taught that, but I'm talking about really believe that, that he hasn't failed, okay, but that he doesn't ignore you, and that he doesn't love you, or you are unsure about that. I encourage you to ask the Lord to show you his love towards you, specifically and specially. Uh, And next week, I'll be sharing my testimony where I discuss some of my challenges in this area and how God triumphed over them. Praise God. But for now, we're looking at Habakkuk waiting on the Lord. And that's the thing. That's the challenge for me still all the time. God is not in a hurry, but Jessica is. Yet, as we wait upon him 
it helps us to look to him. As we look to him, he pulls us close. He reveals things about ourselves. And he teaches us more and more about his great character. And oh, the things that we learn, oh, the way we mature, the fruit that grows. There's so much living and thriving in that space and in that valley. I've heard it said that while we'd love to remain on the mountaintop forever, it's in the valley where the orchard grows, the fruit grows, all of that. Oh, what a privilege it is to wait in the Lord. Amen. Yeah. So going back to what Jess was comically alluding to earlier about her being naturally mm-hmm. just active and ready, you know, I'm just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess yeah, I can still hear my mother's voice uh, when I was growing up saying, Barbie, come on, hurry up. What's taking you so long? <laughs> and, you know, actually warned my husband while he was pursuing me for marriage. I was like, you need to understand something. You know, I am slow. (laughs) I just simply don't get into a hurry. Not very often. And so he kindly reassured me, you know, baby, you're not slow. You just take your time. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. It was a beautiful perspective. Yeah, that is. Praise God for that. You may recall in the last segment, I mentioned David. He was anointed as a future king of Israel and waited 25 years for it to become a reality. Can you imagine knowing that for 25 years of your life that you were going to be king? I would have been 22 and been like, okay, God, I'm ready. I'm like, mm-hmm. when is it coming? I'm ready to be king now. Um, why isn't it happening? And didn't you mean it? Yet he did not. Moreover, David learned to be a man after God's heart in the pasture with stinky, ornery sheep. And then he learned to be a king while fleeing for his life on the run. Hmm. See, the work, the task, the development of action begins in quietly waiting for God to work. And then beginning to work little by little at putting our efforts into the work. And he trains us gently and carefully. Notice the second part of verse three here in Habakkuk again says, it will surely come. It will not tarry. Speaking about the message. So although Habakkuk may have to wait for the Lord's answer, It would come at exactly the right time, and then it would be time to run with it. And I shudder to think of how many things would have been sorted out if I had just waited on God. How much anxiousness would I have spared myself? How many circumstances did I create just because I don't like waiting? So to reiterate verse 1 of Habakkuk, who was looking to the Lord, his focus Although he does not understand what the Lord is doing, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. I will watch to see what he will say to me. He's listening for God. Silence. Silence is so very important. We do God such a disservice. We call Almighty God into account, and then we're unprepared to wait. Think of that. We call Him into account. We 
prayed for something and then we're ready. Where is it, Lord? I asked for it. I did the right things. And then we're unprepared to wait. We get disappointed, dejected. We were unprepared to be courteous enough to listen to what he may say to us. The very fact that God is in control, it sets us free from the frantic struggling, allowing us to be still and know that he is God. I've heard it said the battlefield of faith is strewn with carcasses of those who refuse to tackle the issues which confronted them in this way. But then God answers Habakkuk. He says to write it down, make it plain so a herald may run with it for others to quickly hear. And he goes on to give Habakkuk revelation, which, although it was burdensome for Habakkuk to know and to bear the news of coming judgment to Israel, it is also a reward, a reward of answering. We can trust in the Lord, and it requires us to lean not on our own understanding. Then the Lord begins this revelation, and I'll wrap this up here with verse 4. The following statement says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The righteous will live and die and possess eternity by his faith. In my notes from Blue Letter Bible, one of my favorite text commentaries on the subject by David Gusick, it reads, But the just shall live by his faith. In contrast to the proud, there are the just. The principle of their life is faith, instead of pride that looks to self. True faith looks outside of self unto the Lord God, while pride always looks to self. In Hebrew, the important part of the verse has only three words. Wow, imagine that. And uh, the three words translate to uh, these three parts. The justified man, by his faith, and will live. Every word in Habakkuk 2.4 is important. And the Lord quotes it three times in the New Testament just to bring out the fullness of the meeting. And there's three verses here, and I encourage you to write these down so you can look this up for yourself. Now, where does he quote it? I'm going to try to do this justice. So in Romans 1.17 is the commentary on the justified man. The just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 has the second word. It's the commentary on faith. The just shall live by faith. And then thirdly, in Galatians 3.11, is the commentary on the Christian life. The just shall live by faith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much boiling down to faith. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. So, you know, learning to be faithful in the waiting. Whew. Trusting God knows what he's doing in our lives and the lives of those that we love believing him through the hard stuff, even the no's, the waits, and the diagnoses. Is there something he is calling you to wait on him for, to trust him in? You know, he is faithful through it all and can be trusted. Will we be faithful and can we be trusted? And that wraps it up for this segment. Coming up next, Advancing Forward in faith right after this looking to take your bible reading to a deeper level 
check out the Blue Letter Bible, an online Bible-centered resource of study tools linked directly to Bible passages, including commentaries, encyclopedias, maps, images, and much more. Your daily Bible reading will come alive as you explore the context of passages by expounding upon text and audio commentaries, search scriptures, and examine the original meaning of Hebrew and Greek words utilizing the lexicon feature. So, if you're wanting to dive deeper into understanding God's Word, download the Blue Letter Bible app or visit blueletterbible.org. Our God is faithful. We can be faithful because God is faithful. Psalm 89 is saturated with song and stanza of God's faithfulness. I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations with my mouth. For I will declare, faithful love is built up forever. You establish your faithfulness in the heavens. Lord, the heavens praise your wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Lord God of hosts, Who is strong like you, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. The reading of these Psalms is such a beautiful way to open up, isn't it? I love that. We can turn the Bible into prayer. It's been said the mightier any is in the word, the mightier they'll be in prayer. As our desires and prayer life lines up with God's will and word, the mightier in prayer will be because God will start answering our prayers. Why? Why is that? Because they're lining up with God's will and he will start moving mountains. To know what God's will is, is to be a daughter opening and reading his word. Yes. So when we place faith in God, we believe what he has said is true. And when we act on his word, when we are faithful, he is pleased with us and we bring him pleasure. Abraham was called God's friend. He was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar, proving that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was perfected. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so he was called God's friend. True faith will work itself out into action, producing genuine obedience and good fruit. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's in James 2.26. So all through time, throughout the Bible, God is requiring faith, which produces obedience by his people to his commands. There's many accounts where God gets to the point with his people where he pretty much presents an ultimatum. It's what I like to call the if and then clause. So God deals with his people presenting an if and then or when and will in an attempt to cause them to choose to be obedient and faithful through action. It's kind of like when our parents said to us, And now we say to our kiddos, if you clean your room, then you can go outside and play. 
or when you finish your homework, I will allow you to play the game. So a common if and then often quoted is the Lord's response to Solomon after finishing the Lord's temple in the royal palace in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And, you know, there's many other places where God issues an if and then, placing his people or a person in a position to have to obey and be faithful or suffer the consequences. So a few more here, Exodus 23, 22. If you carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For Samuel 7, 3 says, Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. There's many more references there in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. First uh, Kings, though, 1821, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Isaiah 48, 18, if only you had paid attention to my commands, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And the final one from the New Testament, Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come to, with me, then he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So real and genuine faith is a call to action and obedience on our part. We see the heart and desires of God expressed, how his moves and blessings contain this if and then clause. Hmm, that's very interesting, this concept of if and then, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, look at all these biblical examples we have, that if we seek him and obey his precepts, then he will blank. I think of 1 John 5, 14, I think 14 and 15, that says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. We know that we have what we ask of him in his will. He hears and will answer. Of course, this is not about asking things and claiming things. This is about prayer, asking God to do something, asking for his providence, trusting his will that it will be done and that it is good. You know, we can pray according to his will and we can expect him to move. And we don't have to doubt. We can be excited about it. It's a special relationship we're growing with the Lord as we surrender and trust him. In it, he works out the fruits of joy as we anticipate his moving. And ladies, faith is not passive. It is action-based. It takes a lot of work to have faith. The principles are simple. But yes, it can feel like a lot of work. 
as we seek and we trust him and he works that out in us. Think of the passage of the mustard seed. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. We often tend to think that we just need more faith. Okay, I just need this tiny little faith, faith the size of a little seed. So how do I have more faith? No, no, no. What Jesus is saying here is that if you had real faith, real faith rooted and fixed on me, just the tiniest bit, then you could do the impossible through me. And we're so fixed on how to have more, better faith. And that's such a genuine desire for us to have. But what we need is to fix our eyes on the object of our faith, Jesus the Christ, and surrender to him. Know his promises, ladies. Know his character and believe them. And it is then that we will see mountains move. Now, remember, ladies, God doesn't always just directly give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. God will either change our circumstances or he'll change us through the circumstances, therefore removing those mountains. So perhaps instead of needing more faith, may we utilize the measure of faith we've been given, say, by using our talents God has equipped us with. There's another illustration of how we will be held accountable by putting faith in action by using the talents that God has given us. Jesus shares a parable in Matthew 25, beginning in uh, verse 14. The parable illustrates different levels of faithfulness with different amounts of talent, which a man had given each one of his slaves. So to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and then he went on a journey. It says the man who had received five talents immediately put them to work and earned five more. And in the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. So after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. Then the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man. Reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But the master replied to him, You evil, lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has Ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, 
even what he has will be taken from him and throw this good-for-nothing slave into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But let's not miss a perhaps even greater truth here, however. The parable is also saying, when we do possess a true saving faith, we will find a way to utilize what measure God has given to us. The wicked slave was not condemned for his failure to invest the talent. Rather, his lack of good works showed he lacked genuine faith. Okay, so this account is a call to be faithful, to utilize all God has given us, spiritual gifts, time, talents, resources, in service of our master. And so when we do, we are ultimately serving and being faithful with an audience of one, and it gives him joy, and we are able to join him in his joy. And we will one day hear this this statement that I love so much, well done, good and faithful servant. For we will all one day give an account of how we spend our talents in our lives, whether faithful, investing in the kingdom, and or, and or generous, or doubtful, suspicious, or lazy. Our master, Jesus says, if we are faithful to obey his commands and commission, he calls us his faithful friends as well. John 15, 14 through 15, you are my friends, Jesus said, if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. Mm. What a wonderful thought to be a friend with Jesus. Mm. Do we believe that God has given us specifically intimately a purpose to fulfill? Do we believe in God's ability to move unmovable mountains? That his promises are for us to grab a hold of. We can read them today in 2020 in our Bibles. We can read his will. We can read his promises. We can hold them up and say, Lord, I read this and I believe this. I trust you. You will fulfill your promise. Amen. Who cares about the obstacle? Who cares about the obstacles in your way? Is your God not greater? Did he not create all things? Even our greatest adversary, the devil, is God's creation. I often think, Lord, who is your equal contender? Why aren't we getting fed up with this? There are enemies of your God. Your precious God who loves you, died for you and gave his son. I mean, most of us have a home. We have some food and clothing. Sisters, has he been good to you? He's certainly given me more than I deserve. Yes. So why aren't we angry with a godly, heavenly fire? over the injustice that's being done in our lives by the adversary. Aren't you tired of the chipping, the accusing, the wearing down? Your enemy studies you and takes that chipping hammer to you and those you hold precious. He accuses you and mocks your God. 
This should light a fire in us. And yet so many of us are hiding out in caves, waiting to be rescued and unwilling to fight. Oh, daughters, please hear me. Has God not given us his mighty armor, his weapons of protection, his belt of truth? We are one of the fortunate ones to have direct and easy access to truth. His helmet of salvation, it is a gift. His breastplate of righteousness, another gift paid for with your Messiah's blood. His shoes for you to spread the gospel in peace, the grip for running swiftly or for standing firm. His shield of faith, another gift. Our faith is being worked out in us daily. I love a message from the late Dr. Walter Martin, and it's stuck with me so much that I pray this almost every day if I can remember to. He says, Lord Jesus, you have said that you have conquered the world. I believe you. Therefore, conquer this day through me. Give to me the victory. Give to me the measure of faith I need for today. Never mind tomorrow. Never mind next week. I might not be here. But give me the measure of faith I need for today. And I love this prayer because it puts right now into frame for today. I can do that. Furthermore, it motivates me to seek him again tomorrow to pray and ask for the same measure. God, he always generously blesses. And lastly, we have been given the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And this, along with other weapons, our praises, thanksgiving, the word of our testimony, we advance the kingdom of God. We're not just built to defend ourselves, but we are defended and then we advance forward. God is good at accomplishing his will. But do we believe that, ladies? Do we truly believe that? And to view our problems with fresh eyes, new lenses, which are focused on the object of our faith, the mighty one. The one who says, what is too difficult for me? The one who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Those mountains, suddenly, they don't seem so big. Yes. You know, perhaps the greatest need each of us have for our lives is to gain God's perspective mm. on each and every situation, problem, person in our lives. Amen. Amen. And probably... Something that I think is a temptation to think in response to that is, well, how could I ever have God's perspective? He's so much greater than I. But if we pray and we ask for God to just show us, help us to see with his eyes, he'll give to us the measure of wisdom, the, the measure of vernacular, um, that vantage from the watchtower that we spoke a few sessions back. Yes. Um, he will grant that. And he is happy to do so. It gives him great pleasure for us to ask for those things. Yes. So the anticipation of God moving the unmovable before he's moved it um, is something we're going to talk about now. Praying with confidence. You know, this is what we're talking about. Are we not in a battle? Do you believe that? And I know some people really grasp that and some that's not the the most favorable way to think of it. And the reality is, whether we want to believe it or not, the reality is, is that we are in one. And we need to be training ourselves in the word and disciplining ourselves in prayer before the battle begins. 
because it's going to come. We cannot stop the battle from coming in our lives, small and great. And see, the battle isn't fought at the climax. The battle is fought and won in the quiet dead of night, in the closets and on the floors of God's people crying out, surrendering and cheering on the one who has already conquered. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our victory, the Lord our banner. Lift him high, ladies. Let's lift him high. And I'm not knocking this, but I will say if we sing our worship songs with lyrics like that, lift him up, lift him up. And all we're experiencing is just that feeling in that moment, that feel good feeling. It is not enough because true worship, true lifting him high is done in these private moments. And maybe I sound like I'm hitting this with a hammer. We're talking about obtaining deep faith and I want us, we want us all, and in the Lord's grace, I need the Lord's grace, me too, me too, and all of this, me, to grasp and possess this and reap it, use it, and rejoice in it to advance the kingdom of God. There's so much focus, and it's necessary to focus on defending ourselves, but we're also meant at some juncture to advance and to move forward and to gain ground. Yes, Jess, I know your passion is birthed out of a genuine desire for ladies. You know, all of us to place our gaze, our focus, and our faith in Jesus alone, knowing that when we do, our wants our worship and prayers transform into God's plans and purposes, his perfect will for us. Amen. Amen. And I know we're talking about deep things and we're talking about battle and intensity and, and defense and offense and gaining ground. And um, oftentimes, and in the big scope of things, it is this big dramatic ba battle but what about some of these smaller things in life? There are uh, things that we want in life, things that we can ask God for that aren't as intense. And so I'm going to kind of come off of that a little bit. I know that we've said early on and in just our style, we get deep. So we like to say, and then uh, we promise to not leave you there. We're going to come out a little bit. So let's talk about the, the things that we want in life. Can we ask God for that? Even the little things. And of course, the answer is sure we can. Let's look at Matthew 6, 25. I spent a lot of time here at several junctures in my life, uh, just seeking relief from different things. And, you know, I didn't want idols. I didn't want excessive riches or fame. I just wanted a little help. I did want a, a bit of rescuing, a little relief. And times get hard. And sisters, we find ourselves here, don't we? And it says, therefore, I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? 
See, that last line speaks to me, Barbara, because I'm a meat and potatoes kind of girl. (laughs) Well, I'm (laughs) in Oklahoma, so we're fine too. So I I really like meat and uh, raiment too. We need to bring that word back, raiment. I'm going raiment shopping. Anyway, (laughs) Jesus goes on to highlight his attention and providence over the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, comparing them to Solomon. And saying that not even Solomon in his best splendor looked like this. It's such a beautiful, beautiful visual. And he says, uh, wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And he says, for your heavenly father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And this is kind of the anthem that's been the undercurrent of each one of these series is to seek God first. You can ask him for these things. You can ask him for all kinds of things. There's nothing too small or too great. God is very concerned with the tiniest little matters of your life. And it is about that growing relationship as we talk to him and we trust him. And so we learn to seek him and he will supply. Ladies, there's your formula. We base our prayers on truth, faith in the scriptures, and rest in what God has said in those scriptures. Philippians 4, 6 says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we just don't know what the answers are, you know, whether it's big answers we're desperately seeking or even smaller things, we can leave it in God's hands and say, "Thy will be done. I trust you. This is the basis of faith. And otherwise, if we constantly impose our will upon God, if we're trying to force it and make it happen and just seek that one thing, we have to be careful that it doesn't become an idol. But all in all, we'll never be content until God does what we want. And that sounds miserable. How much misery women are dealing with. Uh, with discontentment, anger, worry, strife. How much of that could all be healed or even avoided if we just prayed, Lord, I really want to have this mountain removed. So please move it. But if it must stay, then change me through it for your glory. I accept. I step out. I trust. I trust you. Then watch the mountains of fear, of despair, of worry, of striving. Be removed as he changes you. Watch him use you and excite you as he redeems your pain. If God has meant for your pain to have a purpose, he will want to use it and elevate it to a place where it's used for his glory, that others will see how you handle it and say, wow. Wow, God. For example, think of the scene of Paul and Silas blessing God's name in the Philippian jail cell in Acts 16. It says, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Wow. That paints quite a picture, doesn't it? Why? Out of all of that, we have this paradox scene of Paul and Silas singing praises in a jail cell, in chains, and this whole event that comes to pass. Why, in the end, would this jailer listen to Paul? We can only surmise it's because Paul's behavior in this crisis, in this situation, proved that God was still on the throne. Notice the jailer and family was saved and baptized. That's the testimony of suffering well, trusting God. The world takes notice living out peace and joy, contentment. It's so countercultural to the way we have a tendency to behave. This is also a reminder to not waste opportunities of suffering by trying to get free. Of course, we pray asking God to remove it, but to also use us in it, to remain with us, to comfort us, to walk with us and us with him as we journey through the valley and to get us through. Suffering reveals the deep depth of who we are. Absolutely. I received a an envelope this week in the mail uh, from a woman. And I believe that she's been listening to the podcast some. Um, and I had shared some of my story about one of the hardest times in my life and how I had uh, gotten through that. And so she shared um, her story with me. And it was so similar um, to what she had gone through. She was taking in some foster children. And at one point, a series of events occurred where she was falsely accused and then eventually convicted of abuse that did not happen. Mm. It was just set up this way. This is what they wanted to believe. And they framed her and she went to jail and she was describing in her typed testimony um, how afraid she was, how, you know, she had never been to jail. She didn't know how to handle herself. She was scared. Um, but slowly, she wanted to represent Christ. She's a believer uh, well while she was incarcerated. And so she just began singing praises in her cell. And that would attract wow. some of the other ladies and inmates. Um, you know, she would sing hymns. She would sing about her God. And then she began to share the word of God while she was there. And she saw, you know, ladies come to Christ, ladies be encouraged. And, you know, all of this being 
through being falsely accused. And, mm. um, and so it was just, you know, this is exactly what we're talking about, that she could have sat there and asked, um, which of course she did ask why, but she could have, you know, that could have been a totally different direction there. She could have been bitter. She could have been angry or unforgiving of her accusers, but she decided to use that situation to be a, uh, a testimony, you know, to the Lord and to other women around her. And so, you know, as we finish this out, how are we to advance forward in our faith? So first we know our God, our Father is faithful. And because He is faithful, we can be faithful with the measure of faith that He has given us, no matter the circumstances or the situations that we're called upon to represent him in. And is the Lord himself our focus of worship, our victory, our banner? Are we lifting him high or are we putting more focus on the situation and how we feel? And we serve the same God and Jesus who proposed what I call the if and then clauses to his people. Do we realize that there are consequences, you know, if we don't obey God's commands and great commission? even today. Would I say my faith is more passive or assertive? Is my highest goal to gain God's perspective, understand His will, and then make faith moves and decisions, taking risks based on His promises for the greater good of the people He is seeking to reach with His love and gospel? You know, am I using the measure of faith and gifts and talents that God has instilled and entrusted to me? Or have I assigned a false identity to God by burying my gifts and talents when God opened the door of opportunity to honor Him and to give others an opportunity to hear the gospel and to see an example of living faith? So, ladies, what is He asking you to do today? What is He asking me to do today? Let us be found faithful. Thank you for joining us. Accompany us next week, where we'll discuss forgiveness, wayward paths, and God's pursuit of his sheep in Jess's testimony, a story of the prodigal daughter. See you then. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please feel free to rate and review our podcast and share it with all your friends. Thank you for spending your time with us. We hope you're leaving with a deepening fascination to fellowship with the one who has created you for his purpose and desires to show you more of his goodness every day. podcast. And while our goal is not to exalt ourselves or even to become widely known, we can always use help to aid us in covering our cost. We created this podcast to encourage women to open their Bibles and rediscover the great Lord. It's our first ambition to faithfully seek, follow, and obey the Lord in every step. And it's under His authority we recognize the responsibility of good and faithful stewardship. We purposefully do not have an advertising or sponsorship program. 
The advertising you hear on this podcast are resources we personally use and want to advocate for. Every one of them have been prayerfully chosen, and we do not charge to promote them. Occasionally, we'll share a product we're using and get a small commission. However, still, we will only vet a product that we can truly say we recommend. So while we've not created this podcast to make money, we understand that one may want to bless us with a financial gift. This is truly a blessing for us as it takes a lot to keep this program running. If you'd like to donate, please visit seekingholy.fm and click on the heart in the upper right-hand corner. We appreciate your contribution.